You found us through fly fishing. You'll stay for our passion and the community. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Podcast. Yeah, but he doesn't get it. How come fly fishermen don't get it? You only haul with the short power snap. Look for where people walk and the insides of bends and, and hunt those. The roof blew off and the interior walls got sucked out. And the trees are just coming up. And I mean, he's clearly not going to clear the trees. It is not a fly fishing story. It's a story about me trying to understand my brother through fly fishing. Welcome to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show, where you discover tips, tricks, and tools from the leading names in fly fishing today. Today's episode is sponsored by Eastern Idaho's Yellowstone Teton Territory, Idaho's most renowned zone for fly fishing. From the Henry's Fork to the South Fork of the Snake and all the high alpine lakes and streams in between, Yellowstone Teton Territory provides anglers and other outdoor enthusiasts with all the information they need to plan their next big trip. You can visit wetflyswing.com slash Teton right now to get the full list of outfitters, lodges, fly shops, and all kinds of inspiration to get you started on your next trip to Eastern Idaho. That's Teton, T-E-T-O-N, wetflyswing.com slash Teton. We've been waiting for you. Follow our guests, follow us on Instagram, and share this episode and the love if you enjoy this podcast. And we are live in three, two, one. Phil Roy back on again. I think Phil as our reigning champion. You have uh I don't think I have to guess now. You've had more podcasts than anybody else so far. Are you still okay with the podcasting? Yeah, I love it. I love it. It's uh an honor to to have that uh um to have that title. <laughs> yeah. I, it wasn't something I was uh, a sub- subversive uh, goal of mine. It just uh always enjoy talking with you. Nice, nice. Well, you know, of course, you have the Littoral Zone, which is a popular podcast that we have that's in the network and, and people are loving the Stillwater stuff. So today, I think what we're going to dig into is a little bit of a quick update. And we really want to give a shout out to this event we have going down to one of the famous parts of Stillwater areas in the Henry's Lake area. So we're going to talk about that today, maybe some tactics, maybe some upper level techniques that people can think about. But um, before we jump into it, let's take it back real quick. How have things been going? You've been out there. You've been busy. Um, it seems like you're flying all over the North America. How's that been going? It has been busy. Uh, you know, typically for me, spring and now heading into the fall season are my busiest times of the year with uh, the Stillwater schools I do, destination schools, those kind of things. Uh, early on in the year, it's all about fly fishing shows and outdoor shows and things like that. So I get a little bit of a break in August, and I think I've got a little bit of a break in November before heading off to Argentina uh, to go chase those giant rainbows in Jurassic Park. And this time on my trip to Argentina, I've got a week prior that I managed to put together with a group, and we're going to go chase Golden Dorado for the first time. So, Oh, wow. I'm excited about that. Um, no coronamids, obviously. Yeah. <laughs> no no small things, just big streamers for a fish that likes to kill other fish. You're doing it. All right, you want to give, where are you heading? Are you heading up to a lodge? or? Yeah, well, I'm heading to the lodge I do my uh, hosted trips to Argentina with, Estancia Laguna Verde. The owner of that lodge, Beto, also owns Golden Dorado River Cruisers. So this is a refurbished houseboat, beautiful, luxurious. So you cruise up and down the Paraná River, uh, 
I love how I said river there. Yeah, that was good. That was, was that French? Was that French? No, I went back to my English roots somehow. Oh, right. (laughs) Um, Anyway, um, so up up and down the Paraná River following the Golden Dorado because the bait fish they feed on, their name escapes me right now. Um, They move up and down with it. So you're in this houseboat as your home base, and then you're in, you know, motorized boat skiffs with 60-horse Yamahas, I think, scooting around. Uh, the river chasing these golden Dorado and big streamers and poppers and things like that. So I'm looking forward to that. I'm looking forward to it being warm too. So <laughs> Right. Yeah. Yeah. That's yeah. awesome. That's so cool. You're doing that. And I've heard about some of those trips out there with the boat. So you guys are actually going to be staying on this houseboat, like sleeping on the, on the water. Yeah. It's pretty luxurious because uh, Beto and his uh, team that runs both lodges, uh, they do everything top drawer. So it's beautiful accommodation, first-class food, as I jokingly say, the magic wine cabinet that seems to deplete every night and resupply itself overnight. So, um, right. <laughs> yeah, some very, very good Malbecs down there. Right. So you're doing the trip. So you have the the same, the Jurassic Lake trip you've done. And then the week before, yeah. how far is the, are the des- those places apart? Well, I land, you go to Buenos Aires, and then I believe it's about a four and a half, five-hour drive to the Golden Dorado River Cruiser. So we'll do that for four, four and a half days, drive back to Buenos Aires, have a day in Buenos Aires, and then we fly down to El Calafate, which is about three hours south uh, flight uh, from Buenos Aires, uh, land there, spend the night there, and then we're picked up early on the Saturday morning by a little bus, and then we're driven up um, Highway 40 in Patagonia, uh, about five hours, I would say, and we're met about a third, two-thirds of the way up that highway um, by the lodge vehicles coming out with the previous group. And we do this big inter, uh, inter-Patagonia switch. The guests coming out go into the bus and we go All into right. the trucks and then off we go into the lodge. Get there about noonish, um, leave about seven and then get, get settled in, get a good meal in us, the first of many good meals there. And then off to, we fish some of the local lagunas first. So the lagoon, the, the, the lodge sits on Laguna Verde, which Sounds much better in Spanish than it does in English because it's basically <laughs> Green Lake. Um, oh, yeah. And uh, we fish there or one of the other lagunas for a while. Um, the guides are getting, I think, I firmly believe they're sort of checking the group out and see how they can handle the conditions because it is a little bit windy there at times, to say the least. Uh, but it really fires the fish up, gets that wave action churning the food in the shallows, which is primarily scuds. So these lagunas have fish to, to 10 pounds in them, maybe a little larger. And then... The next day and for the rest of the trip, then you're off to um, Lago Strobel, better known as Jurassic Lake. And the lodge has over 14 miles of access to the shore. So we're all fishing from shore because you sure wouldn't want to go out in a boat. You wouldn't want to go out in a boat in that lake for two reasons. First of all, with the wind that comes up and how fast and how big it is, you'd probably get killed. Uh, (laughs) You'd just be pounded against the rocks. And you don't need to because the fish feed right along the edges of the shore because the rocks... Uh, the calcium, it's a very rich lake full of scuds, and uh, that wave action churns them up, and the fish come in shallow. They like it when it's a little rock and roll as far as wind going on. Protects them, masks their presence, churns up food. You know, most of your fish are caught um, within a, a reasonable cast length from shore. Um, there's usually not too many reasons to bomb out eight miles of line. Uh, most of the time, the fish, you can almost stab them with your rod tip. So you can see these big submarines cruising by. It's wow. uh intimidating and awe-inspiring all rolled in. Are you fishing to a specific fish? Um, sometimes. Sometimes you see them, but a lot of times you'll find them, they'll pot up, and so you'll have a group of them out there. And with the wave action, it's not always easy to sight fish because it's not flat calm. 
there are times it does get flat calm. I always tell my guests, you can probably expect one day to be all or part of the day to be calm and bright, and it's tough. That water is very clear. Those fish are reluctant to come in shallow, and uh, so it, uh, it's pretty challenging. So when that wave action's up due to the wind, it's usually a lot better. Uh, we're fishing, you know, it's all floating lines. Fishing scud patterns to a degree, but most part we're fishing, you know, we fish balanced leeches a lot, either casting and retrieving them or hanging them under indicators or dry dropper. There's minimal insect act, uh, activity. I think I found signs of a few cased caddis in there, but nothing else, maybe some ridiculously tiny midges. And, uh, but they'll still come up and eat a big chubby Chernobyl on the top, which is pretty exciting to watch, you know, a fish with the size of a small child's head. come out of the water. Wow. They, so they'll eat chubbies on the surface? Big chubbies, like sixes. That's amazing. Yeah, it's, it sucks. It's horrible. I, you know, I don't know how anybody can put up with that. Kind of <laughs> and that's interesting because this kind of reminds me as you're talking, you know, is like Pyramid Lake. Is it similar to Pyramid at all? In the Yeah, it is similar in look and... Um, and wind? Know, and wind, yeah. Pyramid is a good training ground for Patagonia, for Lagostrobel uh, because of that. Same kind of topography looks very similar. Lagostrobel itself is rich in calcium, so all the rocks around the shoreline are either weather-worn and smooth or look like coral heads because of the calcium that's encrusted around them. So you can, on smaller rocks, you can sometimes kick at them, and that calcium will break open like an Easter egg, wow. revealing the rock inside. Yeah, it's cool. it's pretty cool. And really, the three food sources are the scuds I mentioned, zooplankton, and uh, snails. So, you know, your big streamers, guys bring down their big, you know, I'm sure they might eat the odd uh, juvenile, but you rarely see. The only time I've ever seen juvenile um, rainbows in there is in the Barrancosa River itself. And that's the river that feeds Lago Strobel and where the original stocking took place. Um, years ago, a rancher, a uh, stanchia owner down there, wanted his own, as I understand it, wanted his own private fishery, introduced um, McLeod strain rainbows that had been, I think, one generation through an Argentine hatchery, put them in and some stayed and most left and went out into the lake that was just crawling with scuds and rich and, and the rest is sort of history. So it's a very special place. Today's episode is presented by Jackson Hole Fly Company. Jackson Hole Fly Company is a new kind of online fly shop. They design and manufacture their own high quality fly rods, reels, gear, and over 1,000 fly patterns. Right now, you can get 25% off your first order. Go to jhflyco.com slash swing to get started today. That's jhflyco.com slash swing. There you go. Well, this is good. I think that, uh, you know, I mean, probably a good transition into what we're going to cover today. But another special place is, like we said, the, the Henry's Fork area, Henry's Lake, yes. Sheridan. I mean, it's not far away from like the stuff in Montana, uh, Utah. I mean, there's a bunch of lakes out here and you've covered this. We're going to talk about some of this today. Maybe just, um, you know, before we jump into this, give us a little primer on, you know, again, somebody is getting ready to fish they're going to be heading to you know sheridan is a private lake but there's henry's lake some of these other ones oh, yeah. fish out there what should they be thinking about to prepare if they're kind of doing their own thing what would you tell that person well it's all uh, as most um destinations it's seasonal you know i love the island park area i first went there i went with the new fly fisher to film an episode um with bob jacklin oh um, nice yeah so we fished primarily rivers there but we did do one day on hebgen lake uh through firehole lodge they're located on the shores the south shores of of Henry's, uh, Henry's of uh, Hebgen. 
And so we did that. I fell in love with the area. Just, you know, it's just very pleasing on the eye. It's sort of the epicenter of blue ribbon fly fishing. When you think about rivers like the Madison, the Henry's Fork, the Gallatin, all the Yellowstone Park rivers, uh, you know, the Yellowstone River itself, all the cutthroat, browns, rainbows, all of that stuff. But they have some very good stillwater fisheries there. You've got, as you've mentioned, Henry's Lake, uh, Hebgen Lake. Uh, Island Park Reservoir uh, can fish well from time to time. Cliff and Wade, Quake, and there's probably other lakes I've yet to discover um, there, but those lakes keep me pretty occupied, particularly Hebgen, Henry's, and as you mentioned, Sheridan, the private lake uh, in the Island Park area. So it's kind of this epicenter of fly fishing, and most people look at it for the moving water stuff, the rivers and streams. So when you go down there, I can remember some of my drives. I remember particularly one year, it was a high water year, so a lot of the rivers, your traditional, um, you know, sea, governed by runoff are just bank to bank and swollen. And the, the, the Madison wasn't because its flow is somewhat governed by its outflow out of Quake Lake, but it was packed with anglers. There was at every, at every uh, access point, there had to be 50 anglers upstream, downstream on each side, plus drift wow. boats going through. <laughs> and I, yeah, and I pulled into Quake Lake, and I think there was one other car in the parking lot. Oh, amazing. Yeah, so it's uh, a pretty special place. Uh, sometimes I wonder if I, I should tell people about it because it's kind of right. nice to, go down, to drive down. Because it's a 13-hour drive for me to get down there. So oh, That's not bad. Yeah, it's, you know. <laughs> Got iTunes and podcasts. There you go. <laughs> um, and, uh, you know, it's just a, a special place. for. And, you know, the it's the same tactics I use everywhere else. You know, the good thing about uh, Stillwater Trout is they don't know borders. So we, they eat the same thing. So, you know, we spend a lot of time in early spring fishing coronamids. Uh, what I've noticed, it's getting more and more popular with the anglers I bump into down there. But, you know, prior to that, it was sort of fishing a woolly bugger on a type two, you know, dragging it around or fishing dry droppers which are two presentation tactics uh, in my stillwater arsenal that are way down the list, just the way I develop. So fish a lot of coronamids there. It's got some outstanding calabatus hatches, particularly in the month of August, which is one of the reasons I like it, because most of my lakes in August are in the middle of the summer doldrums. They're, you know, the trout have gone deep. The oxygen content isn't great due to the increased water temperature. So we a lot of times leave them alone. Um, but due to the elevation in the, uh, particularly in the West Yellowstone area, lakes like Hebgen, their calabatus hatch is rocking in, um, in August and you get the great dry fly activity. You get the gulpers, which the lake is famous for. And they're called that because when these fish take a spent spinner or a terrestrial later on in the season off the surface, their rise is an audible gulp. You hear it. Wow. It's quite noticeable, and I can remember once just, you know, looking for rises and hearing this gulp behind my left shoulder and just pivoting and firing it. So not like a splash, it's a gulp. Just no, like it's a, a gulp. Just like you were gulping, yep. Literally, yeah. The, the lake is flat calm. These spinners are lying spent on the surface, you know, body flush, wings outstretched and flush, very hard to see. And these the trout know that they're not going anywhere. This is a food source that's not going to run away on them. And they just leisurely come up to it, open their mouth, take it down. And of course, when they do that, they get that gulp of air with them as well, which makes that, that as their jaw comes down on that food source, it makes that gulp sound, which is your trigger to get a fly in that area, try to read. And it's fun because these fish will adopt predictable rise patterns if, if the conditions are right. So you can see a fish rising and every eight feet it comes up, you just drop your fly eight feet out in front of it. And if you're lucky, if the fly is good, the presentation is good and the fish is in the mood, it'll just 
without hesitation, come up and take your fly down. So real one v one experience. Uh, if you like that kind of thing, you know the beauty of dry fly fishing in lakes is we don't get um, the dry fly opportunities that rivers and streams are famous for. Most of the, f- the fish, you know, have sort of learned to feed deeper on the nymphs or the pupa. It's safer. It's more efficient. But lakes like Kebgan are the exception. They'll come up and feed on the surface. So you want to be prepared uh, for that opportunity and take full advantage of it. So it's a lot of fun. One V one, you put your fly out there, put it in the right place. And if that fish doesn't come up for it or veers left or right, you know, you've done something wrong. Yeah. And what is the one V one? That's you versus the fish. Oh, that's it. So the fish, fish has come up. You've seen it rise. You've hopefully got the right fly on. You make the right presentation. The fly lands delicately and appropriately in the right spot. And the fish just takes it like it's a natural just comes up so that's the when you win that battle that you get the reward otherwise you get rejected and you left scratching your head or stomping your feet or just shrugging your shoulders and in, in uh, disbelief gotcha this is great and so on the calabasas let's, let's describe first what a calabasas is just a little bit just high level and then sure. where would somebody go to learn more about the entomology because i think calabatus right so I, i'm not yeah. quite sure yeah yeah my apologies for that so calabatus is one of the few stillwater based mayflies out there it's from the swimming nymph family, so Betis blue-winged olives, which many river and stream anglers are filmed with. It's its larger cousin, if you will. So it's uh, a nymph that lives in lakes. There's not a lot of mayflies that live in lakes because um, uh, the oxygen requirements. Um, you know, lakes aren't, uh, you know, don't have that current to help uh, augment the oxygenation in the water. So the these mayflies have external gills. They they vibrate and flutter uh, continuously as they extract oxygen from the water and they swim like little minnows, little rapid undulations of their body, you know, and move in, in uh, little bursts and then a pause, little bursts and a pause um, and move yeah. through. So, you know, in that area too, you will get a little bit of trico action as well mm. and some other mayflies. And those are a lot of times related to the um, inflows, the streams that come in, the the uh, uh, South Fork of the Madison um, that comes into Madison Arm. And I have just gone a total blank on the river that comes into uh, the north end up in the grayling arm. Could even be the grayling. But um, those are the two most popular spots on the east side of the lake because they're shallow and uh, full of nutrients. And that's where you're going to get your plant growth established. And then all the food sources call that home and the trout go in there to hunt. So you do get some of that activity. You know, another mayfly you might run into in lakes is uh, Hexagena, mm, Limbata, right. the a big, giant the, the giant, yeah, that's my kind of mayfly. At dark, right? Is that kind of an yeah. even, or I guess that's for um, brown trout fishing, but yeah. Um, yeah, they are an insect that's known for having uh, nocturnal emergences. Um, I've been on some waters that uh, they will come off in the day, but, you know, those nymphs are huge, um, you know, as big as your pinky. Uh, so, and the, the, the adults are like a size four sometimes. So that's, that's a good size mayfly. Where's your calabatus? You know, up in our waters in Canada, early season, we may see them as large as the 12, but usually 14, 16s, and 18s. And the good thing about calabatus is they have what's called multi-brood. So they will have multiple hatches within a season. So you'll have an emergence early season, and then that uh, the progeny of that uh, batch will uh, uh, hatch again later on in the season. And they're a little smaller because the growth time between the, the different emergences is less, so they're smaller. Uh, and you'll tend to see darker colored adults in the spring because it's cooler. So that dark body absorbs the sun's energy because mayflies, once they reach the adult stage, they can't take in water. They're on a time, uh, a pretty tight timeline to mate and, and reproduce because, um, you know, they're going to die. 
Um, uh, whereas in the warmer months, they tend to be a little lighter colored um, because they need to reflect the sun's energy somewhat so they don't get dehydrated. But Calipatus mayflies, the females are unique because most mayflies, when they hatch, you know, they become spinners, they fly off, they molt again pretty quickly and shed their skin once more. And now they're sexually mature. They can mate. So they have clear wings, long tails, get into these rhythmic dances above the water or along the shoreline. And then the females lay eggs and die. Uh, on the water surface. Whereas Calabatus females actually, once they've been impregnated, they gestate the eggs inside. So they will sit in the shoreline vegetation for a period of, a, you know, three to five days, gestate those eggs and then come back and lay them. So as soon as those eggs hit the, the water surface, they hatch almost immediately. All right. And um, jumpstart those little guys uh, on their way. So kind of a unique twist in the mayfly world. And the other mayfly you'll see is Canis, uh, nicknamed the white wing curse. And you will see these. They're tiny. They're almost all white, the females with a little sort of coffee brown uh, thorax area. But they are, the nymphs bury themselves or crawlers. They bury themselves in the bottom debris. So they're not typically visible to foraging trout. Sure, you might do a throat analysis and get one in there, but it's not something I would, you know, a small, tiny pheasant tail would probably work. Um then the, um, they crawl, they migrate like stoneflies into the shallows, really skinny water. They hatch there at night and almost immediately transform into the spinner, mate and die. So it's a little confusing to the angler because they come to the lake the next morning and see all these little white mayflies, uh, spinners scattered all over the surface and think they missed something. And really it's, it's not something I focus on in my fly box. Yeah. That's a good question. That, that's why I want to ask you about the box because you talk, we got these flies, you know, there's a few, few uh, you know, mayflies out there, but really, you know, there's a lot of other stuff going on under the surface. Oh, definitely. So if we're coming to, on this trip, if somebody's going to be heading to this island park area, Henry's Lake, all these lakes, what would be, you know, what does your fly box look like? Does it look different than it would look if you're fishing up in Canada? Not really. Um, it's, uh, you know, it'd be well represented by coronamids, both the pupa and larval stages. And then scuds would be represented in there. Uh, Calabatus, damsels. There's some incredible damsel activity in populations um, down there. I've had days where I've been fishing where my arms are literally coated because I'm on the downwind side, typically with the wind at my back. And these um, adult damsels use me as a bit of a windbreak and all congregate and just let your arms are blue with all the adults. Sitting right. There. Wow. Um, I've had some good luck using... Um, Dragonfly nymphs, from t uh, particularly in the fall months in the shallows, stripping those around. Um, leeches are always a good idea. And a lot of the lakes have, you know, little populations of forage fish uh, as well. So streamers, small streamers um, can work uh, particularly well. Your little zonker type streamers to represent small bait fish, juvenile trout, those kind of things. Most of the time I'm fishing, uh, I do have a, a tendency to fish coronamids whenever I can because it's such a, two reasons, it's such a popular food source. Every stillwater trout eats those, and it's technically demanding at times. It's, uh, you know, if you like solving problems and using different techniques to unlock the mystery, uh, it's a great hatch. It's the kind of hatch you'll spend a lifetime perfecting and playing with uh, all the time. You're never, it's, you never sort of rest, at least I never have, always experimenting with new leader setups, new presentation options, new fly patterns especially. Um, always keeps you challenged that way. So that's sort of, and attract, and attractors. So the gaudy stuff, uh, your blobs, your boobies, apps, worms, um, those kind of things. These are flies that you strip aggressively through the water. 
most of the time. Uh, with Sometimes with beadhead blobs, we do suspend them under a strike indicator because we often use them when the trout are in the summer months or coming out of the summer months where they've been in deep water a lot where the oxygen is at that time and feeding on zooplankton, little almost microscopic uh, food sources that they strain through their gills and just take them down. Rich in calories, for years tough to match, but uh, the English sort of helped us figure it out and using patterns like a blob, which for your river and stream angler looks like a an egg, but in still water, we believe them to be zooplankton clusters. So, mm. <laughs> um, But we um, they'll get on those. And the other benefit of those attractors, if you're fishing a multi-fly setup, which you can uh, in that Island Park, Henry's Lake area, you can fish an attractor on your team of flies and the fish obviously can take that fly, but they can also be attracted to the flies. They see that larger gaudier fly at distance will come over to investigate, have a look, and then maybe turn down or turn away from it. But as they turn away and pass down the leader, there might be a small mayfly nymph on the setup as well, or a small leech or something a little more natural and the fish take that. So that fly attracts and it can be a little misleading sometimes because I've had anglers that have said, you know, they're fishing this team of flies. And of course, whenever you fish multiple flies, there's always your risk of tangling goes up. So that blob, for example, or fab or booby is not doing catching fish and they take it off and their success rate drops because those fish are finding it harder to find your smaller natural flies now um, because they don't have the benefit of that gaudy attractor um, standing out at distance and pulling them in for a look. So um you know we also fish with those attractors a lot of times attractors such as a booby which has foam eyeballs and the fab which has a split foam tail it's an acronym for fomars blob um, because in england some of these attractor flies particularly the booby was some of the fisheries were banning it um, not so much for effectively catching fish but because fly anglers were becoming one-dimensional that's all they did so they're trying to encourage them through the rules on the fisheries there to fish other ways so competition fishing is very prevalent over there. And I believe a Scottish team sort of asked the question, well, if we put foam at the back end of the fly, is that legal? And I guess the rules makers were scratching their head and going, well, I guess not. So they came up with this uh, split foam tail sticking out the back. So you tie the foam in, split it. I usually use a carefully use a straight edge to split it and then use your usual fritz materials for the body in single colors, multiple colors. They become quite, you could fill an entire fly box with attractors of all the different color combinations you could have. And um, so this fly, the booby kind of wobbles and rises and falls. The fab, when you strip it, obviously moves horizontally. And then when you pause it, that foam tail kicks in and makes the back end of the fly pop up. So you have a different action to it. And it's, it, it is one of my favorite um, attractors because it sinks a little faster than a booby. A booby's quite buoyant with those foam eyeballs on it, but the fab's a little less buoyant. So just there's days that, you know, in, a, in this uh, multi-fly setup where you want one style over the other. And of course, personal preference comes in. I've caught a lot of fish on fab, so I have a lot of confidence in it. And that's a huge factor. I think whenever you're fly fishing, no matter what you're chasing, if you believe in what you're doing and the flies you're using, you tend to fish them better and do those little things that you don't even realize you're doing that lead to your success. So, so we fish a lot of those. And I recall you, you mentioned Sheridan. Yeah. I was down there last year and we had such a warm in the West. We had such a warm fall. And uh, so we still had coronamids coming off in early October, big ones like size 12s. And um, so these fish were up on the surface 
taking the odd adult, but a lot of times taking the pupa as they ascend to the surface and suspend momentarily between the beneath the surface film rather, and then crawl out and emerge into the adult form, which looks like a mosquito and fly off. Mm. Thankfully, the females don't bite. They don't need blood to um, egg development. So these fish were coming up and taking these flies randomly. And if you tried to fish to these rising fish, you would have driven yourself crazy because they were so unpredictable in their rise forms. You just would have been beating the water to a froth and casting an area where the fish is only to have it rise 50 feet to your right and all this kind of stuff. So what I decided to do was fish a technique called the washing line. So the washing line is a multi-fly setup where you put the buoyant fly on the point position, the one furthest away from the fly line. And then you, off independent droppers, you hang one or two flies, typically, um, off these independent droppers. So I just did a two-fly setup, tangles less than a three-fly setup. And I just put, I had a floating line on. I just had a, you know, I think I started with like a seven and a half foot leader as my core, my foundation and then added tippet. So at the end of that seven and a half footer, I had a dropper uh, uh, when I tied my tippet on. And then five feet away, I had this fab on the point. So that's the one with the split foam tail. And then I hung a little beadhead chromie, about a size 12 chromie off of there. And I would just cast this line out. It would land on the surface. And then once it settled, I just did a slow, steady hand twist retrieve. And what this washing line does, the buoyancy of the fly in conjunction with my fly line allows you to track your flies back towards you at a controlled level. So when you see fish rising on the surface like that, you know that they are, a lot of them are up near the surface. So you need to keep your fly up near the surface, you know, within a foot or two. So this setup would allow me to do that. So I'm tracking the flies back through where the fish are feeding and did very well. A lot of fish ate the coronamid, but you get the odd fish that wax the the fab as well. So, Hmm. and it was a great way because rather than trying to target individual fish, I had a, you know, fish rising randomly all over the place in front of me. I could just place a long, comfortable cast, allow it to settle and track those flies all the way back through those feeding fish and let them decide when they're going to eat it. And it worked very, very well. So, and you could do that. You could do that in a calabatus hatch too. You could put your, your um, dry fly parachute atoms out on the point and hang a little pheasant tail or a little unweighted mayfly nymph or a, a, perhaps a soft tackle or an English pattern called a cruncher, which is a pheasant tail with a little um, cheap grade uh, hackle on the front of it spread around just to the hackle helps, you know, slow the slink rate of the fly and track it through those rising fish. So it's a very, uh, it's a favorite technique of mine to use the washing line. The washing line is what it's called. Yes, because the flies hang off independent droppers and that buoyant right. fly, and they resemble clothes on a washing line. It's an English technique again. They do a lot of still water fishing yep. over there and um, pretty innovative gang. And um, so that sort of has migrated or emigrated over to North America now. And it's very popular with the competition fly fishers that use it. And I you know, did a little competition fishing many years ago in a younger fill, <laughs> hmm. but um, it's a very applicable technique to anybody fishing uh, still waters. Bear vault is one way to assure your next backcountry trip stays memorable, epic, and safe. Bear vault builds a rugged polycarbonate locking canister that keeps bears and other wild animals away from your food. This in turn keeps your food safe, keeps the bears safe, and keeps you safe. I've got a classic story that I told. I've told a few times about the bear taking my backpack while up in Alaska. 
had my lunch and some snacks in there and just went up around the corner to fish for a bit. And when I got back, it was uh, totally gone. If I would have had that bear vault right at that moment, I would have been okay because my food would have been completely sealed. The bear would have had no idea and no reason to take my backpack. So a good reminder there. You might not realize it, but this type of thing happens all the time, even to experienced outdoorsmen. The great news for us is now we can experience the great stuff of a remote trip without ever having to worry about animals fiddling with our stuff. Sleep soundly knowing your vault has sealed the deal for you. Believe it or not, food storage is a key consideration while backcountry hiking, fishing, or camping. The Bear Vault also has some great bonus features like the see-through sidewalls so you can find your stuff really easy and a large opening plus it doubles as a nice camp stool this thing is legit it definitely is one of my this might be my favorite feature is is the camp stool you know i love a good a good chair out there check in with the crew at bear vault at wetflyswing.com bear vault that's bear vault b-e-a-r-v-a-u-l-t okay back to the show that was great information. We're going to keep this going. I want to give a quick shout out to the uh, the giveaway we have going right now. Um, well, there's a couple places, but at wetflyswing.com slash giveaway, we are, we're giving away uh, a trip and a bunch of gear to this area. So that's one place uh, that we've got going right now as we speak. Also, we're working on uh, putting together this live event. So if people want to get some more information on what we're talking about that we don't cover today, uh, we're going to have you, we're setting this up now, but I think we're going to have you come on for a live event to answer questions. So oh, cool. we'll, That'll be fun. we'll throw that link out there at uh, wetflyswing.com slash live and people can actually um, enter or just join that. They can just join and check it out. So, so cool. All right. So there's a couple things um, on this. I want to circle back around. Um, there's so much information here with the flies. Let's take it back to all the flies. You know, you talk coronamid, scuds, all the lineup. Yep. If you give us a name, you talked about a few of them, but what would be a few patterns that would cover each of those categories? Um, there's a, a in the coronamid larva pattern, I have a pattern of mine called the hollow worm. That pattern is available, and I'll, I'll let you know when they are on mine and Brian Chan's online Stillwater Fly Fishing Store, stillwaterflyfishingstore.com. Shameless promotion there, Dave. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Now keep it going. So we have the hollow worm, which is basically a curved scud hook, little red marabou tail to suggest a wiggling larva, a red body, and a bead. There's also a pattern designed by Jerry McBride called out of Spokane, Washington, called the bionic worm, mm. uh, which works well in deep water, so 15, 18, 20 feet down where a lot of coronamid larvae like to establish themselves because they love muddy bottoms. So that's where you're going to find a lot of mud in the lakes in the deeper water where the weed growth is minimal or reduced because there's no fo- sunlight doesn't get down there to stimulate weed growth through photosynthesis. So that's got a hot pink, fluorescent pink tail, the red body, and a hot orange bead. So when you first look at that fly, you go, that's mm. a little over the top, but right. they like it. Other flies in the pupil stages, your basic black and red coronamid, black body, red rib of some sort, wire or holographic uh, mylar or flashaboo, and, you know, a black bead with a tuft of yarn for white gills or an all-white bead, your basic, you know, thread body rib, just a bigger zebra midge, basically. Black and red is a good color, black and silver. Um, When the coronamids are hatching, you're seeing the adults fly off. The pupa, as they elevate, become quite shiny because they trap gas beneath their skin that provides buoyancy and so that helps them elevate up to the surface and also it helps expel themselves from their pupil shuck and transform into the adults. They become quite silvery. 
So a pattern such as Micromi with a silver body, red rib, black bead, yarn gills um, works very well. Um, you can also tie it with anti-static bag material, which is what electronic equipment's packaged in. You cut it into thin, narrow strips and make a body out of that because this transition from dull to fully inflated, shiny pupa, um, sometimes they'll focus on this gunmetal gray or pewter color. It's not bright silver, but it's it's kind of a, you know, a, a shiny gray. Um, so we'll have those. And another pattern I've done very well with down there is a pattern of mine called the Collaborator, which is kind of a burnt orange coloration with a little red butt because sometimes the pupa, the residual hemoglobin from the larval stage will gather both in the tip of the abdomen and along the abdominal segment. So that's why red is a prominent rib and butt color in those flies. And that one is, again, available both um, on my YouTube. You know, I also have a YouTube channel, Dave, as you know, that uh, oh, yeah. a lot of these flies I tie on there. So if you're a tyer, go to my YouTube channel. If you're a buyer. Go okay. To yeah. And on the YouTube channel, do you regularly, are you putting more stuff out there on flies or as you go? Yep. Or how's that look? Yeah. Yeah. It's predominantly been a fly tying channel. I am expanding once my uh, schedule winds down a bit with a little more tips, leader setups, mm -hmm. uh, those kind of things, uh, kit bag tours, boat tours, all the things I get a lot of questions on, and uh, vlogging where I go out on the water and um, film my day on the water with a specific educational theme in mind, whether it's using washing line tactics or doing this or whatever I'm doing, rather not just this Phil goes fishing and you get to come along kind of thing. Yeah, cool. And I'm looking at the channel now, the Philroy Fly Fishing. Yeah, you got yeah. one. Here, uh, tie the simple calabatus. And so, you know, calabatus done. You got tying yep. a simple, right? Some leech. So, so, yeah, you got some different patterns. This is awesome. So, this will yeah, we'll put just, a link to that. Yeah. Yeah. I've just come out. A friend of mine helps me film and edit them, mm. and we shoot them in batches. So, I've just shot 16 of them, and I'm going to go back uh, into the studio, if you will, again when I get back in a couple of weeks and rattle off another 16. Because as I get into the show season, uh, oh, as yeah. you know, <laughs> it's tough to do all this stuff, but you have it in the can, much like doing your podcast, right? Then you yep. just release them. Uh, you do them in batches and then um, you can create a regular schedule. So my goal is once the season starts to wind down and start putting a video out a week just to build the frequency. So uh, it's kind of like a TV channel. Once you everybody yeah. knows you're going to put something new out, they, they sort of become uh, attuned to that and follow yeah, subscribers. <laughs> yeah. So other patterns, damsels, pearly damsel is a favorite of mine. Uh, striptease damsels. These are all available on both the store and the site. Mayfly nymphs. I love my hurl may. I've got turkey quail calabatus is one of the first patterns I ever tied. I've got one called a stillwater calabatus I use as well. You know, a parachute Adams is great for the adults. I've got a few duns. I just, you mentioned that one. It's just up on my site. Yeah. Uh, my stillwater done uh, kind of a, more of a synthetic based pattern. Um, your blobs and your fabs, those are well represented on my site and on the store. So full mass blobs, um, blobs themselves, boobies, apps, worm. We're, I'm working with Montana fly company to, to get a version of that. I tie, I, I nicknamed Kristen the shower spider because it's tied on a jig hook with, um, a head turner bead on it. These teardrop tungsten beads. So you can fish it balanced. If you attach the fly to your tippet using a clinch knot, it will orientate to fish horizontally, but I really like to strip this fly. And I took this version down to Argentina with me on my last trip. And red is a popular color down there. So like a red copper John in a size 10 or 12 is a good fly. Flies with red in them, they seem to like them down there. And so I thought after about day three, well, let's give this thing a try. I tied four of them just on a lark 
cast it out there using floating line, you know, use Rio's outbound shorts, great line for the wind uh, down there, cast it out, let it sink for about 10, 15 seconds and aggressively strip it back in four to six inch pull. So this fly has a, a fluorescent red or orange body and these long stretch floss, super floss, span flex, this long stretchy leg material. And we're talking three extra long on the shank. So these things are like two and a half inch long legs sticking out two out the front, two out the back, two out the sides. Hmm. So when you strip this thing back in the water, these legs are kicking and flowing and moving. And when you look at it, it looks like a drowned spider. You know, if you ever got a shower spider in the shower and you're like, ah, drown it and put it down the drain, that's what it looks like. And I had three fish follow that fly in about a foot behind uh, that were between 10 and 15 pounds that followed it in. So I knew I was on to something. I flopped it back out there again, give it a couple of strips and locked up. And that's what I fished for the rest of the week. So that fly has quickly won favor in my heart. So that's uh, on my YouTube channel as well. The Argentine apps or shower spider, as I call it now. Cool. So that gives us a few patterns. So as we're, let's, you know, take it back into that Henry's Lake area. So if we were kind of planning a trip to say the Henry's, you know, Lake, Henry's Fork or Lake, that area, or any of those other ones, what would be you know, again, coming up to the new lake, what are you thinking about? You know, that's always a question that always comes up, right? You're at a new lake. How do you start? Where do you start fishing? And how do you plan to prepare for this? Well, I do a lot of study before I get down there. So you can go online, look at Facebook groups. There's still a few internet forums around, you know, look at uh, fishing reports for fly shops. Uh, I know there's a couple of fly shops in that area that uh, do have a still water focus to them. So they can give you, you know, either online or you can call them. So you've got some idea. If you can get a hold of a bathymetric map, an underwater contour map, that will give you some clues as to where the different shallow and deep spots are. And I like to fish those transitions if I can, you know, where it's, you know, along the edges of drop-offs because the fish will cruise those edges uh, like a game trail. And if they get startled, they can quickly zip off into the depths to avoid whatever startled them. But in the shallows is where all the food is. That's where you know, most of the times in, in lakes, we're fishing shallow water uh, because sunlight stimulates plant growth and that creates habitat for food. So Henry's Lake, which we've mentioned, we haven't really talked about it much yet, is a massive lake. It's big and shallow and rich in weed beds. Like it's just one giant shoal. It's a giant fish supermarket. Mm-hmm. There's lots of goodies for fish to eat there in the form of scuds and leeches and coronamids and damsels and caddis. Mm-hmm. And, you know, all the major food groups are there. So it's a, a very good fishery for growing big fish, but can be very, very challenging because the fish can scatter and be anywhere because of there's so much habitat for them to occupy. Mm-hmm. Um, so when I go to a new lake, I've done that. I get to the lake shore. I try to you know, sort of match up that mental picture I've been building through my pre-trip analysis and then put it, you know, say, okay, that looking at my bathymetric map, okay, that spot's over there and that spot's there and, and those kind of things. And, and then I'm looking for three things in a lake. I'm looking for comfort, protection, and food. So comfort comes in the way of um, primarily water temperature and its relationship to oxygen content. So trout are you know, pretty narrow-minded as far as their oxygen. I'm looking for water in that, let's say, 50 to 65 degree Fahrenheit range. So I use electronics and I also have a thermometer on a little string if I want to probe the depths a little deeper. And I'm going to look for, you know, water temperature where the trout are comfortable and can basically function. Because if you can't breathe properly and metabolically can't function, you're not terribly interested in and eating. Right. You, right. If you think about yeah. your, the analogy I use is if I ever ran in the Boston Marathon and didn't have a heart, <laughs> yeah. didn't have a heart attack after about the first mile and actually 
finished it, you came up to me later and offered me a cheeseburger as much as I like. <laughs> yeah. I'm like, Dave, get that out of my face right now. I'm just yeah. trying to get my breath back. So similar kind of analogy. And then protection is another factor. And those are, you know, factors that'll give the trout a sense of confidence and, and, you know, sort of throw caution to the wind and feed. So that could be a rippled surface, an algal bloom, because people look at algae and go, Ugh. and Henry's Lake is rich, got lots of algae in it. But a lot of times that algae is a plant. So its whole growth is governed by sunlight. So it's going to be most concentrated near the surface, five to 10 feet down. Underneath of that, it can be relatively clear and the trout forage away in great happiness there. Um, so there's that. Um, you know, I mentioned structure, drop-offs, weed beds, those kind of things, points of land, uh, rocky outcropping, sunken islands, all that kind of stuff. Any irregularity you can find. And again, that's where the electronics come in. That's why I call them sounders, not so much for their fish finding ability, but more for their ability to uh, help you identify structure that you just can't see beneath the surface. And lastly, food, which is, you know, what hatches are going on and where are those bugs most likely to be found? And again, most of the time we're looking as stillwater fly fishers for that water 20 feet deep or less because of the influence of the sun stimulating weed growth and then providing habitat for food. That's the Costco, the Walmart, the grocery store, the underwater world where fish go to feed. So, you know, if you plant yourself there and and fish those areas at some point in the day, some fish should come in for a bite to eat and you can hopefully coax them to do that. So, wow, this is amazing. You know, that's an episode unto itself. Well, and I was just going to say the cool, maybe one for the littoral zone. Well, I was just going to say, actually, (laughs) I'm, I'm just doing some work. So Shout out to Littoral Zone uh, number one. And we yeah. have, this is really easy to find. We've got this on the website under podcast and Littoral Zone, and we've got them all listed there. We're up to, I think we're up to five now, Littoral Zone episodes, maybe maybe more. Five I think we, six. Yeah, yeah, five. I think we got the next, the six ones coming out. It'll be out when this goes live. But the cool thing is you could search it right there, and episode number one is actually a Finding Fish. Yes. Finding fish yep. on Stillwater. So that was a big yep. thing. And you got into some other stuff. But so the cool thing about that is, is that people, we can take the deep dive. And, and right now we're going to hit the surface on a lot of this. And then we go yep. deeper with the littoral zone. Yeah. The littoral zone is the fancy name for the shoal area of the lake yep. where all the feeding takes place. So it's kind of, that's sort of, it's a play on words um, yep. for the name of the podcast. So. Yeah, definitely. And I know you covered fly lines on that littoral zone as well, mm-hmm. but let's just touch on that real quick because you mentioned- yep the dry lines and fishing that. So why, when would you, um, it seems like the hover line or the intermediate might break, get below the wind a little bit and get you. Yeah. When is the dry line better to use? Uh, obviously when you're using indicators, um, uh, sometimes personal preference, it's the way I had to learn to fish coronamids. We used to fish floating lines, not very good ones, long leaders built primarily out of maxima, unweighted flies, and had to cast out, you let this fly sink. And the whole success of the method was related to the weight of the pattern. And it, when you're fishing coronamids, you couldn't really weight them because you made them too fat and obese and they just didn't look natural. Uh, Maxima, while a very strong monofilament product, is doesn't sink all that well. And uh, we had to, you know, it's a combination of letting your fly sink, how fast you move it, as you move it creepy, small, slow, we usually say when you got the retrieve figured out, you cut it in half again, um, your pattern weight and your leader length. It's kind of a, you get those four things in balance and you can have some success. So that's good technique for using not only with chronomids, mayfly nymphs, and of course, fishing under indicators, which has become very popular. That's a floating line technique. Other lines, like you mentioned, the intermediates, your clear intermediates would be good for, because they sink anywhere, depending on the line type and the manufacturer from 
maybe an inch and a half to two inches per second. Um, so that allows you, it's a great line to, if you like to paddle around and, and troll in a float tube or a pontoon boat, it's good for that. If you want to strip leeches and little bait fish patterns and fish damsel nymphs, and even mayfly nymphs in slightly deeper water, you can do that too. And then the other line I probably have is something uh, fast sinking in a type five, maybe, or if you fished Henry's a lot, a type three is a good line too. These are lines that sink at three and five inches per second. Good for fishing attractors, fishing deeper, stripping leeches, streamers, those kind of things as well. But as you saw in those two episodes, we have way more fly lines available to us in lakes um, than these three. But those, I would call those the three core lines, a floating line that is best suited for casting long leaders and indicators, not necessarily a dry line. That is that long front taper that dissipates casting energy and facilitates that delicate presentation. That's a good line if you're on Hebgen and fishing to gulping fish, of course, but your indicator type lines or lines suited for um, long leaders are going to have a bit more of an aggressive head to help turn, have the mass closer to the leader to help turn it all over. And then your clear intermediate and your fast sinker. And then you can start filling in the other fly lines, um, which the analogy I use is like golf clubs. You can, yep. and I'm a lousy golfer, but you could probably golf with a wood, a favorite iron, a sand wedge, maybe, and a putter, maybe, you know, right. so I'm sure some golfing guy, no way. But anyway, yep. uh, I'm such a bad golfer. All the clubs in the world won't help me. But when you start getting more and more into the still water stuff, you'll find these lines have their little niche in there and they really perform. And once you've had success on them, they're a bit addictive and you need one bad, yeah. you know, cause I probably in my kit bag, I probably have anywhere from 16 to 20 fly lines with me. Mm. at any one time and i've usually got two or three rigged up and ready to go uh, which i like to do because it's quick to make changes a lot of times we're creatures of um, path of least resistance so if it's too much effort to change up a fly line and string a rod then you won't do it and then you find out you, later in the day you probably should have done it because you missed out so if you have a an indicator rod rigged up your clear intermediate rigged up and maybe that type three if you're fishing henry's you can quickly change you go okay the indicator doesn't seem to be working let's try if they want to chase a moving fly so let's pick up the clear intermediate because i'm fishing you know at the mouth of one of the the creeks that come in and uh it's only eight feet deep around these weed pockets so i'm going to put the clear intermediate on then maybe strip a leech or strip a small streamer a bait fish pattern or fish a damsel nymph and see if that works. And because it's just a matter of putting one down and picking the next one up, you're going to, you know, adapt quickly and make those changes. So. Today's episode is sponsored by Chode Outdoor, legendary comfort and equipment you can trust. Chode insists on the finest material and craftsmanship to assure you have the highest standards of quality. You'll feel in control of the elements in your Chode gear. Every product is solidly backed with a no-nonsense warranty against defects. And I have a family connection to Choda over the years. Back in the shop, uh, the old shop, my dad uh, carried Choda, and he wore those proudly with confidence. And now I'm carrying on that tradition supporting Choda, and I'm very excited about the new products coming out this year and working with Choda in 2023. I'm pretty rough in my gear and find myself putting a lot of miles on that gear and being pretty rough on it so it's good to know that the chota gear is durable is bomber and i don't have to worry about it and uh, even on those long trips and you know if you have a blowout it's not going to be a good situation so i'm excited to uh, keep digging into this this year clean comfortable charismatic and ready for any situation you can throw at it you can head over right now to chota outdoor at wetflyswing.com slash chota 
That's C-H-O-T-A. To support this podcast in a great family company right now. Okay, now back to the show. And I was just going to give a shout out. So uh, the Littoral Zone, they can find it there or they can just go to wetflyswing.com slash LZ. And that's going to mm-hmm. redirect right over to the landing page with all those episodes. And number five, you actually covered Making Sense of Stillwater Fly Line. Yeah, that was There's, a two-episode series. Yeah, two-episode yeah, series. We, we did the first series was all, you know, talking about, you know, the fly line uh, makeup, you know, how they're put together right. and, and, and that influence on still water lines. And then all the floating lines from floating through midge tip. And then part two was all about the sinking line stuff. Yeah. Sinking line. It's good. Yeah. So you mentioned a temperature, you know, cover. So let's say they're in a spot, we're in a spot we think is going to work. Now you've got to fly. So where do you start? What is the first thing you're putting on? Do you start with kind of the, the coronamids or do you like, how would you go? Let's just think now. Well, yeah. Yeah. Cause I am looking for signs of hatch. So it's, you know, when I get to the launch, I'm looking around, I'm checking trees, what's flying in the air. If there's a spider web around, have a peekaboo in that. Cause any of the flying insects can get often get stuck in there and give you a clues as to, you know, what ratio different, you could have calabatus in there and coronamid. You could have two calabatus duns and 20 coronamid in there it's probably saying that coronamids might be the place to start and then when you when you're moving around on the water i don't usually go running around at 600 miles an hour i usually cruise very very slowly um, obviously in a pontoon boat or float tube you're paddling or rowing uh, i use electric motors a lot in my boat i'm going very slowly and i'm looking in the water to see any signs of shucks i'm looking for bird activity those kind of things. So concentrate there. But yeah, in the spring months, I'm probably going to spend a lot of time focused on coronamids because it's such a prevalent food source. Even if there's other other bugs coming off, it seems they, you know, it's just like swing, uh, drifting midges on, on the Missouri River or something like that. They seldom turn one down. It's just such an easy food source for them to eat. They just swim up, inhale it, and move on to the next one. Minimal effort, lots of calories. And it, it could start, you fishing the coronamids in the morning, and then your calabatas start to emerge in the afternoon, or maybe dams will start to come off as the air temperature uh, influences the water temperature, stimulates that hatch activity, and, and you change up. So you're always watching and seeing what's going on. Don't try to go in there with a preconceived notion. As much as I said fish coronamids, um, it's just uh, keep your options open because, you know, an experiment. And this is where, if I'm fortunate enough to get a fish, uh, careful use of a throat pump to sample what it's just eaten by sampling its throat, then that'll really tune in as to what's going on, uh, what they're feeding. If they're not feeding, then you start, okay, I've caught a fish, but it's not got anything in it. It's not feeding. That's where your tractor patterns come up to play because these fish aren't uh, in a feeding mode right now. So now you can, you know, trigger a feeding response out of them or trigger an aggressive territorial uh, response out of them by stripping one of those body attractors by them and just make them snap at it. Gosh. When you do the, uh, the throat sample, how often do you get it where there's no bugs in there hardly at all? Um, it's, it typically, you know, it can happen anytime, but a lot of times you tend to see that more in the coming out of the summer time frame because they've been off in the deeper water. Their metabolism is slowed because they're, you know, a little, perhaps a little stressed if the water temperature is up. So you're not fishing them during that stress period, but they're coming out of it. The water temperature is starting to cool and they haven't quite got the feeding mode going yet. That's typically when you see it, but it can happen anytime. You can have periods of where they, you know, they haven't fed. But the beauty of a food source like coronamids, these soft bodied ones, uh, mayfly nymphs, damsels, they're going to digest them in about 12 hours. So, 
you know, they feed at them on the Monday and you're down there on the Tuesday, they're going to feed again because they've digested them all already and they got to go again, right? They got to keep that yeah. engine of theirs. They're not on weight watchers. They're on weight gainers. So they're looking for <laughs> calories. <laughs> yeah, right. Right. Good, good. What would be, you know, would people, we get this question, we've had this question before, but, you know, so we've been talking about some techniques and things like that. You know, how do people improve from where they're at now? Like, how do they get up to that next level? Is it just a matter of getting out there and fishing more? Or are there any tips you give somebody maybe to get their casting, their entomology, all this stuff better? How do they get better at all this stuff? Yeah, that's funny. I did a, a, a Zoom presentation to a club and they asked a similar question. If I was to tell a new angler, a new fly fisher, what two things to do. And it was mm-hmm. a little, I nicknamed it an ambush question because I have no idea. Right. Coming. And, uh, but the two, after a little bit of thought, the two things I said was be a sponge, learn all you can. So that today we're so blessed with, we mentioned YouTube, yep. online learning. Now I do online courses. I did a course with Brian Chan, a live course. I think we did 11 sessions uh, on chronomets, right? So, and when we do these live courses and a lot of them, you, you get the benefit of, of having access to the recordings of those. And you get other, uh, we, we uh, gave away our um, uh, Conquering Chronomets DVD series we did a number of years ago, that kind of thing. Uh, obviously go to outdoor sh- uh, fly fishing shows if they're in your neighborhood or not far away, because you can sit in on these seminars. You can actually, you know, have your specific, you know, um, I've lots of times been, tracked down by somebody with a list of questions and sit down with a cup of coffee and we just yeah. walk through them. If I've got the time in between presentations, um, that way, um, you know, things like we're doing here today, the podcasts yeah. out there, There's so much good information that you can on your way to the destination or driving to and from work, God forbid, you can listen to podcasts and improve your knowledge that way. Books are still a viable place to learn. You know, I've got my most recent book, The Orvis Guide to Stillwater Trout Fishing, which is some have called it a tome because <laughs> <laughs> I, I did 110,000 words. I kind of got really into that. Oh, wow. Um, because it, it's a subject I love so much. So that is a great reference as well. There's other great books out there. Brian Chan and Skip Morris did a book a number of years ago, Danny Rickard's stuff. Yeah. And didn't you have a recent book that came, another book that came out? Yeah, I just had another book uh, called, um, let me have a look here. I always forget my title. Yeah, yeah, it's a fly. It's like Stillwater. Fly fly. With, with Phil Rowley and friends. And uh, for the past 17 years, I've had the good fortune to be the fly tying columnist for BC Outdoors magazine, which is a British Columbia, Canada-based magazine that has a big circulation in the Pacific Northwest. And I do a column in there every episode. So Dave, you're not the only one droning on at me about getting my content in. Uh, <laughs> right. Um, and it's a blend of, you know, river and stream, lake patterns, all kinds of things. And uh, I've done a lot of still water patterns. So it's just kind of a compilation of all those patterns, mostly from other anglers um, that, um, you know, just quietly fish to themselves and design some really great flies, really, really good fly fishers and try to get them the, the publicity they deserve and just to make people aware of some of the great things they've been doing. So that's out as well. Uh, again, these are all available on my the Stillwater Fly Fishing yep. Store. It's turning into an infomercial about that. Right. Place. Well, hey, we, we want the easy access. <laughs> this is good. Yeah. So those are like some of the places, just anywhere you can. There's so much. You know, when I first started fishing lakes, there was you just had to go out there and bloody your nose and stumble around in the dark until you got something right. Um, a lot of the old timers were pretty secretive because they'd gone through the same process and that hard earned harder knowledge was something they didn't want to part with easily. So it was hard to, you know, books, there wasn't much in the way of Stillwater books. There was no YouTubes. There was no videos. There was no podcasts. There was nothing. Yeah. Right. So it was tough. You know, I think today an angler has so many good, 
resources at their disposal to take advantage of. It's I'm kind of envious. Yeah, no, it's good. And I'm looking at your site now. You got a book section, and yeah, you got you got it all here: books and DVDs. Yep. So you got all everything you talked about, plus more uh, conquering chronomids and everything. It's great. Yeah, Brian and I put that store together because. Um, it's strictly still water focused. That's all we deal with. We don't talk about the rivers and streams and all that stuff much as we like to fish them ourselves, but, um, mm-hmm. that's what we focused on. And it came about when Brian and I would do shows together independent or independently. Somebody would ask us about where did you get that fly? Where did right. you get that material? Where did you get that whatever and, or piece of equipment? And we tell them where we got it and they go off and find it. They couldn't find it. They get frustrated. Sometimes they'd send us a kind of terse email, like, where'd you get that stuff? I want it. You right. told me you could get it. So we finally said, you know what? Why don't we sell it? Um, because, you know, a lot of other fly shops have other focuses that they want, and that's good. They should. But the Stillwater stuff is not well understood by many. It's a bit of a you know, the dark arts. I always, <laughs> the analogy, the ugly stepchild in the basement, you know, I'm, when I'm on the fly fishing tour, I'm just the weird Stillwater guy. It's just me pretty well. Yeah, you're the Stillwater guy. Yeah, you're the, you're the guy at the main, right? There's not a bunch of Stillwater guys at the big shows, right? No, no, I'm just that weird guy, floating lines, 25 foot leaders, weighted flies. They'll look at me like, why the hell? Why the hell would you do that? Right, and I'm looking at the Las Vegas leech on your website right yeah, now. So yeah. when somebody goes on that and if they were to add that and purchase that, is that something where like how does that? Do you fulfill that, or where do those flies yep, come from? Those those are they're tied. Uh, we're both Brian and I are royalty tires with uh, Montana Fly Company. So all of those flies are tied by Montana Fly Company to our specifications. And uh, yeah, it's run out of my in my basement of my house. My wife and I do all the uh, shipping, the receiving of product and, and get it out there. So, you know, all our books we sell on our site are all autographed by myself and Brian. Um, so they're, everybody gets an autographed book whenever they order uh, a product like that. We have other products as well, Mystic Rods, Real Lines. Uh, those kind of things, everything for the Stillwater Fly Fisher, every little niche we can think of. So yeah, it's all done out of our, uh, out of my uh, basement. It's been turned into a little small store, a little warehouse. Yeah. Your store, it's that you got your, it's your fly shop. Yeah. It's, it's the, essentially that's what it is. I mean, this day and age, it's like, there's a lot of uh, companies out there that are doing that same thing, right? Because you can, I mean, to a certain level, right? I mean, I guess if you're I think in Montana or Umpqua with them, they're selling probably millions of flies, right? Oh, yeah. So it's a, but Montana Fly Company is one of the big ones. Yeah, and it's been sort of a mission of mine because not too many people understand stillwater fly fishing from the consumer to uh, the retailer to, you know, they're, you know, I'm not trying to disrespect anybody, but it's pretty focused niche. And, you know, when you look at a, a fly shop in the West Yellowstone area, they've got such spectacular river and stream fisheries. They've got to speak to that. They've got to also have a little bit of uh, dedication to the stillwater fisheries there as well. So it's tough for them to, to, to match, to meet all of those. And, you know, when you, like I said in the analogy there, that on the Madison way back in the beginning, just the popularity of the rivers, that's what everybody sort of gravitates to. That's one of the reasons I love that Island Park, Henry's Fork area that we've been talking about is because so much effort is spent on the rivers and streams that a lot of times your lake fishing goes unnoticed, right? And you can- right pull in and ever you, know, you don't have to fight the crowds right that's yeah. one of the things i like about lake fishing our bugs are bigger we generally don't fish size 20 anything you know we don't use 7x tippet 8x tippet we don't do that bigger fish bigger bugs it seems like it's just all easier yeah it's well yes and no <laughs> maybe the catching isn't always yeah. easier it's a little bit more uh, you know some of the methods are pretty finessey and pretty fiddly kind of like euro nymphing has become 
um, as well. You know, you can still get away with the basics and Euronymphing, but if you want to get more and more into it, you start, you know, paying attention to the Devin Olsons, Lance Segans, George Daniels of the world um, that have really, and um, no disrespect to anybody, I left off my list. Those are the three that popped to the top of my mind. Yeah. You know, how, how finessey it can become. And that's part of the fun of it. You can make this sport as complex as you want or as simple as you want. It's entirely up to you and what your needs are. That's the cool thing about this is we're taking a, uh, trying to take a little dive into this. But yeah, I mean, you could get out there on a lake and just have a rod with a line and a, and a woolly bugger and probably catch some fish, right? Yeah, you could. Or uh, hang a balance fly under an indicator a foot to two feet off the bottom and yep. have a great day. Have a really good day. Yeah. 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 Good. Okay. Well, let's take it out. We're going to take it out here with our shout out session. And today... Uh, we're going to give a shout out to the roadie fly rotters. And we had a recent comment from a listener who said that, Hey, you know, get, let's give some shout outs to some of those local groups around the country. And he said, I think he said ro- the roadie fly re- rotters. I'm not sure if this is totally true, but he said it's the oldest local group in the U S I guess like that local fly group. But, um, you have a local, I'm not sure in your area, do you kind of have like a local group or that sort of oh, thing? Yeah, We've got, uh, where I live in the Edmonton area, we've got the Northern lights, uh, fly fishers or Northern lights, trout unlimited. Hmm. They're, they're also a chapter of trout unlimited. Oh Canada yeah. To you as right well. Right. So we have the Northern lights, uh, fly fishers down the road in Calgary. We have, uh, uh, hook and hackle club. There's a Calgary women's fly fishers, which is great to see in red deer. A friend of mine, he does a uh, red deer fly tires. I do a present an annual sort of all day tying clinic with them on camera, uh, walking them through a wide range and not just Lake, you know, we've done big pike streamers. We've done Euro nymphs. We've done a whole pile of things with them. So they're, they're, they're around. And when I lived in British Columbia, I was a member of the Osprey fly fishers uh, based in the greater Vancouver area. So there's a number of clubs there as well. There you go. Um, they're around. They you get to find them. And there's obviously I've spoken to lots across North America as well. Yeah. Great. Well, and let's get, uh, we were talking travel a little bit. I, I'm, I want to hear if you have a couple of things. First of all, do you, you think you ever get tired of the traveling? You know, I mean, do you love the traveling? Then also what would be a travel tip you give somebody that's, you know, kind of flying, oh. driving around? <sighs> do I get tired of the traveling? Yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. Everybody thinks it's great, you know, to get to Argentina. Well, this time I'm flying from where I live in Alberta to Toronto, Toronto to San Paulo overnight land in Sao Paulo, Brazil, spend a couple hours there, crawl back on the same plane as I understand it, and then fly off to Buenos Aires. So by the time I get there, I'm pretty well wiped, right? Yeah. And, you know, then conceivably you got another three-hour flight, but usually we take a day in Buenos Aires to acclimatize, get some rest, you know, explore a little bit of the sights around Buenos Aires. So, uh, yeah, but overall, like during the show season, it's just a grind. I always joke they don't call it a travel day for nothing because even a three-hour flight seems to take all day to get it accomplished with layovers and delays and, and all those kind of things. Right. Uh, travel tips, be efficient, travel light. Be efficient. I was just going to say what, what was my thing was like on the, the luggage thing, right? How do you avoid them losing your luggage or do you have any tips there? What do you do? Uh, well, some airlines I was, uh, last time I went to Argentina and I've flown United on the United app, you can look on the app and see the status of your luggage. It tells you, you know, it's been checked in, it's been loaded on the plane. It's now on baggage carousel seven. That's kind of handy. But I know a lot, a lot of people more and more are getting those, um, Apple makes them air tags, air tags. Yeah. So you just throw this little quarter sized, um, thing in your luggage and it speaks to the Bluetooth of your phone. So you can communicate with your luggage and just know where the heck it is. Yeah. And they're only like, they're 30 bucks. And the cool thing is, yeah. is like I used it in the whole time because the last time I traveled, um, they lost my bag for the whole week. 
and and yeah. it was gone. And so, but this, at least you could, t- and I remember that was a problem we had is like, they said, oh, I think it's in Ohio. And the other person's like, no, it's in Seattle. And nobody knew where it was. Yeah. And you're like, how the heck did it get to Seattle? I was going to New York. <laughs> exactly. But that, so this is a good one. So I love that you came up with the, the air tag is a great tip. Yeah. And I, you know, I don't like carry on luggage. Oh, you don't? You know, most of the times I just, I don't want to carry all that stuff, but typically you know, you've got your one bag that's, I always joke, is predominantly fishing gear and a few pairs of underwear and socks because you can always try and find a way to get laundry done, either in a hotel or when I go to lodges like Estancia Laguna Verde, they have laundry service every day if you want. You just put a little laundry hamper, you throw your, your dirty stuff in there, and then when you get back from the end of the day's fishing, it's neatly folded on your bed. So, um, so you want to make sure you've got the gear you need. And then quite often I will put, if I'm using waders, I've got a little roller, carry, you know, your standard carry on suitcase um that i get a two a pair of wading boots a pair of waders and a rain jacket and and that goes in there but all my rods and reels and flies go in my luggage i've got like a roller duffel with two layers in it that'll hold 10 foot rods for still waters we like those longer rods and that everything goes in there because you can't uh, particularly in argentina for example you can't take any fly lines your reels or flies as carry on it has to be checked so when you go to different outside of North America. And even I'm not always convinced uh, everybody in the security world and the great work they do gets the same memo. So some days you, I've had issues with a fly tying vice, you know, because it's a tool. And if you don't, I have to disassemble it to the point that all the pieces are less than seven inches. Cause if it's a tool over seven inches, it's not allowed on the plane is carry on. And of course wow. that's an expensive vice you've got, or just, you got to go check it in. You're in a big long, it's just a, you know, I've never had to do that because do your research and find out what is and isn't allowed. So that's why I'm very limited on the carry on because clothing you can carry on and all that stuff. You're not going to get hung up going through security and find out about something you can't take on the plane. And then that, you know, throws a wrinkle into everything. And then I've got my backpack that's got all my, you know, camera gear in it and GoPros and drones and things I travel with nowadays uh, or, or computers, uh, depending on, or little projectors for presentations, those kind of things. I keep those, the electronics I keep with me because they're delicate. They just can't be, be bounced around in, on a luggage rack <laughs> or in a luggage guard. That's so. it. Perfect. Good. Okay. Well, I'm glad we left for the travel because we are traveling. We're going to be heading out, uh, like we said, to the Henry's Lake area. This is going to be happening next year. Yeah, I'm looking forward to this. Yeah, this is going to be fun. We got a good crew going here. We're going to the lodge that we're going at is high level, really great food. It's amazing. So I think the fishing, we're only 20 minutes away from all these great waters. So um, one last shout out, uh, wetflyswing.com slash giveaway. If anybody wants to enter right now to win this big trip, all the gear, that's going to be going on all this week and it closes up next week. But Phil, uh, we'll, we'll send everybody out to the littoral zone. Just Google search littoral yes. zone on, on Google and this will pop up your episodes. We've been having fun there. So uh, until the next yep. one there. Yeah. Thanks for coming on again. Thanks, Dave. It's always good to talk to you. That is a wrap. You can grab all of the show notes at wetflyswing.com. And please follow us on Instagram and share this episode out with someone you love. Please send me an email, dave at wetflyswing.com if you have any feedback or want us to put together an episode on this podcast for you. Check in anytime. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and would love to meet up with you on the water. We have new fly fishing schools going all year long and all around the country. So if you want to connect, let's do it right now. All right, time to get out of here. I hope you have a great evening. I hope you have a great morning or great afternoon wherever in the world you are. And I appreciate you for stopping by and checking out the show today. 
We'll talk to you soon. Thanks for listening to the Wet Fly Swing Fly Fishing Show. For notes and links from this episode, visit wetflyswing.com.